0: Thank you, um, delighted to be here. Let's take about 30 seconds just to, I know we're just sitting, but just just to, so that I can get the spirit of what's going to come through both of us, and you can get the spirit of how you're going to receive this, so just 30 seconds. Thank you. So a little bit introduction um, of who I am, or who I think I am, and then um, I'll give the microphone to Daiken and then I'll, we'll talk a little bit about, um, I'll, I'll give give a little outline of what we believe we're going to talk about today. So I'm a, um, Francisco Lugoviña, Paco. Um, Born in Puerto Rico 69 years ago. I have been living pretty much in the Bronx all my life. Married four times. The last one is 20 years old, so I think I learned my lesson. (laughs) Uh, Five children, 24 to 52. Two of them live in Brooklyn, they're 24 and 26. Three women and two boys. Seven grandchildren and two great-grandchildren. A full tribe and wonderful people. Um, I've been in business pretty much all my life in the Bronx. I started studying with Bernie about 22 years ago. Bernie Glassman, the Zen Peacemaker Order. Studied with his former spouse who passed away. Roshi uh, Sandra Jishu Holmes, and then he, I don't know, unfortunate, fortune inherited me and I got Dhamma transmission from him. So that's, that's a short version of the, of the Paco person.
1: Does this, can you all, does that work? Okay. Uh, my name is Daikin. Nelson,
2: <laughs> <coughs> that's
1: why I have my stick. <laughs> um, I was born in a faraway land called Iowa um, in the Midwest where I started my Zen practice with the Katagiri Roshi lineage, um, the Zen, Iowa City Zen Center. The Dharma Farmers, as we called ourselves, um, is a was an affiliate and still is. And then I moved to Los Angeles and found the Zen Center of Los Angeles, which is the mother temple of the white plum lineage founded by Mizumi Roshi. Next year will be the 60th uh, anniversary of that. And I started to study with a the teacher there and ordained. Um, then I moved to... I was asked by Bernie Glassman to come to New York to help him with his Peacemaker projects in Yonkers. Then he wanted a distance from the Grayston Foundation and Mandala that he had created because everyone wanted to talk to him about that. And he was t- on to something different. And so he wanted to kind of <laughs> up and move. So we moved to Santa Fe and then um, things happened. And then uh, back in Los Angeles for a little bit, then in New York um i had met paco uh, in my time in yonkers and then from new york i went back to santa fe studied with another teacher um a brief stint in brussels um, for romantic reasons and then back and then i reconnected with paco and we began to study together and i received transmission from him in 2013. And I have been a social worker in the previous part of this life. Um, so I did that for a dozen years and worked with homeless and uh, folks in recovery and folks with chronic mental health issues, as well as uh, my final um, social work, like official social work job, was uh, working with folks with developmental disabilities. And then um I ordained and kind of have been on the Zen track and have done a variety of things and most recently um after transmission kind of um, we are kicked out of the nest, and we're it's like good luck <coughs> and you know go forth and do good and you know uh thanks and so um I kind of sat in discernment for a while to figure out what I wanted to do, and I wanted to, you know, provide meditation for people, so I've started a, um, a sitting group. And um, then I wanted to be kind of a further service to people, and I've worked in restaurants my whole life, starting in high school from washing dishes to serving to running them eventually, and. Um, scheduling, and ordering, and um, helping one restaurant move from this tiny 13-table place to a 40-table place, and all that. And for whatever reason, um, two aspects of Zen practice really hooked me. One was the liturgy, and I just have always loved the, the liturgy, and the bells, and all of that. So that's been a really strong part, but then Second is to be tenzo, so I love tenzo practice. So, so
0: I want you to stop. Okay. Right there.
2: Okay.
0: He's getting ahead of that story. Uh, it's a good story. Okay. Um, and he'll pick up. I, I, I promise you. Um, because one of the things that, one of the things that we <laughs> talked about, he does that to me. Uh, one, of the things, one of the things that we spoke about was, um, you know, what, what can we talk about to a group of folks that are like us, you know, urban uh, urban dwellers? And um, I have a tendency to overprepare for things, and I have a tendency to get really esoteric, where the only person that understands what I said is me. I don't know if you have ever had that experience. So we talked about that f- the recently I've been involved with MBSR, Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction, and it has really strengthened my practice in terms of that language about mindfulness. So we talked about the fact that maybe we, that's what we would talk about, how to be more mindful in your practice, how to bring spirit, mind, uh, body into, into the practice. And so that was the general kind of outline of what we were going to talk about. And um, But we didn't have anything else. Um, and, and I was for sure wanting Daikin to share with you what his <coughs> recent offering has been, which is I think is incredible. So this morning, when I was picking up my, my Raksu, I had this is the Raksu that I received when I became a sensei. But the one, I hardly ever wear this. The one that I wear is the pamsula or the, the one that my former teacher, Roshi Shishu Holmes gave me, which is a real funky uh, rock suit with lots of colors and things. You know, you usually get the black one that some of you have. The, the pamsula rock suits have colors and all kinds of meanings in it. And I got about two of them, including one that Kyoto, Angel Williams is going to be here next week made for me in her sangha in, in uh, Oakland. So I pulled this out. And when I pulled it out, there was, this, there was this piece of paper, except that this piece of paper was like this. And it popped out. And I went, "Oh!" Had it been folded, I probably would have never looked at it. And in it. Um, There was this, and I read it, and it says, this letter was written by a young man serving a life sentence in prison. He recently recently found the Dharma, and is not necessarily seeking a pen pal or resources, because he cannot travel to you to ask his questions. I'm serving as his intermediary. If you wish to respond, you do not have to provide any return address, forward any response to Chaplain Kiana Kerrigan, telephone number, St. Francis, Vancouver, British Columbia, number, and then her email, thank you. I have absolutely no idea who gave me this. Nor do I can remember when I got it. But then inside is the letter, and you, maybe you read the letter, so... We
1: I read the letter. Uh, Dated May 26, 2015. Uh, Consider, because of all the bad I've done, I feel like I don't deserve all the good that happens to me. It seems like all the negative karma I've amassed is primarily in my head, tainting all the things that should give me joy with guilt and a feeling of unworthiness. I mean chiefly my family. The more supportive and more loving and forgiving they become, the guiltier and unworthier I feel towards them. Sometimes I feel like the luckiest man alive to have such a family, but then I feel like I don't deserve this luck and my luck, in quotations, becomes a burden on my conscience. Sometimes I can't help but wonder if I might not be better off alone and with nothing, so to have nothing to be unworthy of. In fact, I've often thought I might kill myself when I'm released from prison. I guess as much as I yearn for my personal freedom, I feel unworthy of that, too. I need to free myself of this guilt, and I don't know how that's possible. And then there's a little graphic of a G. Kind of like a, like a stamp.
0: So the, so the letter obviously touched me and, and rang a lot of bells, and I almost felt like the letter jumped out of my bag and said, "This is this is what you're going to share today." And that's why I did it for no other reasons than that. But it really touched me and uh, almost to the uh, to the point that I whatever it was, 6.30 this morning, whatever it was, I went down to the printer, which I don't know how to operate, my, and I wasn't going to wake up my wife because that would have been another divorce, and you know I can't afford another one. So, so I printed five more copies because maybe this letter is meant for one of you. So I'm going to leave it here or uh, leave it outside. Um, but that's, that, that letter speaks to a lot of our pains in different stages of our lives. Um... And how do you take that stage and you then take it to a path as you're entering the stream where you begin to realize and manifest your bodhisattva vows to serve other people? And that's basically what my whole life has been about and will continue to be until the end of it. And the question be, also will always be there, how do I serve better? One piece, and then I want to turn it over to Daikin is that, um, Kosen, 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 well, well. I was sharing that I grew up with a well. And I was sharing that my grandmother would scream at me as I went down the hill around the corner to pick up the bucket and get the water. She would scream, leave water down there. Leave water down there. Paco, deja agua en el, en el, en el cubo. Paco deja agua en el cubo. Leave water in the other bucket. And I would come up and she said, did you leave water in the bucket? I said, forgot. She said, here, go back. And I said, now, some of you who have not grown up with a well, might not know what that is, but some of you have heard of the expression, prime the pump. So unless you have water, you cannot get water out of a pump well. You have to put water in first so that the water comes out. That's priming the pump. And so uh, we were sharing before that in the Bodhisattva vows, that kind of imagery, that kind of metaphor, is important to me because I always say to people, Self-care is never a selfish act. Self-care is never a selfish act. Sometimes we get confused with our bodhisattva vows that we have to give it all out there and serve and serve and serve and you've heard of burnout. So you have to take care of yourself in all its aspects. That's very much part of the practice of the bodhisattva vows. When you're able to do that and be that, then you're able to sell, serve better. So you were saying before. <laughs> <laughs> um.
1: So, um, I was struck by this image um, when I walked in. I've been here before, it it has been a while. But, um, you know, the the bodhisattvas are expressions of projections of um, manifestations of our aspirations, our qualities that we already have. So we already have compassion, we already have wisdom, we already have that energy, you know, we all carry a sword with us to kind of cut through the bullshit of things that don't matter, things that aren't important, things that are just stuff. And we all have that embodiment of equanimity, um, balance this sense of, you know, being grounded in ourself, in our life, present. So, you know, the Bodhisattvas are always seen as these, you know, kind of angels or these externals. And what they are is they're reminders. So, you know, they, you know, there's the Zen story about the four horses, that there are four types of horses. One responds to the shadow of the whip. The other one responds to just a tap. The other one you have to slap just a little bit, and then there's one you have to be bloody. So we're all those as well. And so, you know, the the vows that we take, the bodhisattva vows that we chant, or when we take the precepts or when we ordain, we take the 16 Bodhisattva precepts. And, you know, we we resonate with the awakened nature of all beings. We become aware of the expression of all of that energy, all that nature. And we find ourselves a community to practice and grow and work together. And then we vow to do no harm, we vow to do good, we vow to do good for others. And then we have some signposts that kind of guide us along that way of being honest, being generous. Um, And so we all find a way to express those bodhisattva vows in our life. And we do that to varying degrees with various levels of success at different times. And so the vows themselves are impossible. Sentient beings are numberless. I vow to save them. So we can't save everyone. So we start here and then we deal with what's right in front of us. Um, another idea that I heard, um, Mother Teresa was recently um, made a saint, and so there was a lot of energy and stories around her. And so, this kind of well-to-do um, American went to Calcutta to work with her. You know, he had the ability just to kind of pick up and go to Calcutta, and and so he shows up to help and do whatever it is. And um, he is introduced to her, and he says, "I've come to Calcutta to help you." And she said, go find your own Calcutta. And she turned around and left. And so, you know, each of us has our Calcutta. We don't have to go off. You know, Dogan says, what is the use of going off here and there to practice? Our practice is right here. And we are bodhisattvas. We are living the bodhisattva vows with each breath that we take. And how that manifests for each one of us is entirely different and unique and makes use of our skills and abilities and interests and But every breath is Hearing the cries of the world every breath is Being one with the awakened nature of all beings being present Amen
0: So one of the things that I decided to do um, during the last 25, 30 years, I guess, um, studying with Bernie was to continue my activities in the South Bronx where I've been all my life. And so in the last 21, 22 years, my practice has been to work with charter schools and children. And so I've been in, in on the board of directors mostly as a policy maker um, helping, so I'm a co-founder of a school called Family Life Academy Charter School, we're into our 16th year we have a thousand students, K through 9th uh, and expanding very rapidly in the South Bronx and that pretty much is my practice, it's my, it's my joy to, to do whatever it is that needs to be done to provide children with um, Better education opportunities. Um, I say it publicly many times that charter schools are not are not the um, the answer to reforming public education. I believe in public education, but I believe charter schools are a mirror in our district to say that it can be done better. So that's all I say about that. Um, and there's other things that I do I'm constantly in my own young mind trying to figure out how to how to serve and how to get engaged um I'm very comfortable in the kitchen you know um I saw you washing the uh, salad bowl I said oh that's my girl <laughs> <laughs> that's my I I love to be able to do that so I love to do, wash dishes so and I st- and that's where I. That's where I get my joy about my living in those moments. Um, so, but sensei here has been doing something which has to do with food, and um, one of the things that I did in those schools, by the way, very short, is I created an organic garden seven years ago, with a tremendous amount of pushback from the pedagogues. And I created a, uh, an, an, a, a, a kitchen. And we have a chef, a present chef, that harvests The kids are involved in growing, the parents. So we, in essence, have a, a food revolution in, in that school in which we tell people, you don't have to change the ethnic foods you eat. You just got to figure out a little bit how to tweak how you cook them. So we've been able, because we've got probably 30 different uh, ethnic groups in our schools. So um, anyway, but I can get like, I can go off on that, but I'm going to give it to you because what you're doing is going important.
1: So as I was saying <laughs> earlier, um, after receiving transmission and um, figuring out what I wanted to do, uh, Combining kind of my social work um, experience and inclination, and also my love of food, I came up with a nonprofit organization. And uh, actually, yesterday, not um, not as a coincidence, um, which was the new moon, and it's also the beginning of uh, Rosh Hashanah for those of us in the Jewish tradition. Who it's the new year. Um, and it's also the day before, the last day of September, today's the first day of October, and we're heading into autumn. And so yesterday, um, the culinary training that I've developed, which is a six-week course, um, we had our first session. And then we start the training in earnest on uh, Monday. So it's a six-week um, job skill training in food service for folks who you know can't afford to go to Union Square and work with Bobby Filet and, but they want, um, they want skills to be able to get a job. And so I'm working with a chef who has a lot of experience working in restaurants in New York and, and setting them up. And she also has been working at a soup kitchen that was started after Hurricane Sandy in the Rockaways. And so she was instrumental in setting that up and they've been providing food a couple times a week since then. But the my intent was to be able to help people you know give them some skills so that they can get jobs and so I've made connections with groups that work with the formerly homeless and also uh, some groups that work with folks who are in reentry from some form of incarceration and also a group that works with veterans and you know sometimes there's crossover with some of those and so <clears throat> we have Right now, we have uh, a couple guys who are justice involved, as they say. Um, One of them is a new father, and he wants some stability so that he can kind of um, have that and raise his son. And the other person uh, would love to run a food truck someday. And another person is an an immigrant from the Caribbean and he wants to be a chef. And so, you know, these folks already have this kind of inclination to work in food service, but you know, being undocumented, being, um, formerly incarcerated, they don't have like a job history or they don't have that experience to just walk into a place. And so, Uh, The chef I'm working with and I, we've developed this six-week program to give them basic skills. And at the end, we'll walk them through the food handler certification, which the city requires. And that will give them kind of two um, chits, two things that will help them get jobs. And I've also created a catering business, which employs some of those folks. Um, I've been working with a formerly homeless vet who's been helping out. And... Actually, the young man who's the uh, undocumented person from the Caribbean, he's been helping as well, and then a couple other folks, to give them jobs. Because immediately they just need money to support themselves. And, um, and then somewhere down the road, kind of the ultimate goal is a community-based pay-by-donation cafe, which will become a community center for people to come. And, hang out and cook and celebrate and dance and play music and art on the walls and all that but that's further down the road so you know it my process was to take a look at my interests and my experience and my intention and kind of try to weave all those together and I came up with this idea to teach people how to cook to help them you know, kind of gain those skills so that they can get jobs. Or in the case of, you know, the two folks, the guy who wants to be a chef and the guy who wants a food truck to kind of help them be able to realize their dreams, whatever that might be. Um, As well as, you know, give folks who are disadvantaged in the system opportunities (coughs) as well.
0: So the The beginning of that was Bernie Glassman, up in Montague, uh, said, maybe I can create a cafe. And so he ended up creating a cafe up there, which still goes on, and it serves food every Saturday. And it's pay-as-you-go, and they, they serve people, as opposed to having people come in with their plates. And so it began to develop that philosophy of tablecloths and serving people, adding music, uh, having counsel afterwards uh, so that people begin to create a community around that. Um, And so Daikin began to take a look at that, and I was looking at that in terms of Grayston, But Daikin has taken that idea and has expanded it and has created a foundational base in terms of the cooking, training, and jobs, which is what people need. And ultimately, since I'm fanciful, I think for me the juice is going to be, because what he's doing is the hard work. That's hard to create that foundation. But to me, the fanciest of the juice is being able to create the cafe ultimately. So you know, I'm I'm still rooting for the cafe and I'm gonna be working with Dycan on that. But the cafe would have probably never taken off in New York, the way the model is up there, because you really needed to build very, very solid foundation, which is what Sensei has done and that's that's what's very exciting for me. So
1: and there's also an interfaith um, component, which is another interest um, I have. Um, there's a Hindu teacher named Sai Baba, and there's a group here in Manhattan that um, gets together uh, once a week on Thursdays, and they, uh, Sai Baba, his core teaching was love all, serve all. And so he had an ashram in India. They would feed hundreds of people a day, and the group here has been providing a meal on Wednesday evenings in Harlem. They set up tables on the street outside a church that lets them use the tables, rain or shine, every Wednesday for the last fifteen years. And you know, in my developing this um, craziness that I'm doing, I met someone who introduced me to the person who's now coordinating that. And we had a conversation and he said, come join us. And so since February, I've been volunteering and serving and, you know, setting up and breaking down and all that. So the Sai Baba group is mostly folks from India and the majority of them live in New Jersey. So they were cooking the food in New Jersey, putting it in the car and driving it over for 15 years, which is just amazing and heroic. And, and not a good use of their time. And so um, just as I joined, um, there's an Episcopal Church in the neighborhood, and the, um, the rector there was very involved in um, homelessness and housing issues. About 40 years ago, there were all of these places in the Lower East Side in Alphabet City that were sitting empty that the city owned. The city had taken them over and they were empty and he his view is that it's a sin to have the space and people without a, a roof over their head. So he and a bunch of people started squatting in these. And so he's very interested and he really wants to be able to use his um, church as a resource for the community. So Hemant, the um, coordinator, of the meal and I went and we spoke with him and he said, you can use our kitchen. So. Starting in May I took over kind of coordinating the food and so now we have to schlep it two blocks as opposed to 20 miles Which is really nice and then Volunteers come in. Um, I'm incorporating that as part of the culinary training So we'll have class on Monday and Tuesday and then on Wednesday We're actually in the kitchen and we're cooking dinner and we serve for you know between 50 and 100 people um, every Wednesday and then as the weather turns cold, the churches are going to allow us to move inside. So we'll actually, much like the model of the Stone Soup Cafe up in, in Western Massachusetts, we'll have an opportunity for people to come and be served and sit at a table for a period of time. Which, for folks who are you know living rough, or folks who are um, kind of um, Issues with feeding themselves, or you know, people don't have the luxury of going out for a meal. Then this will be kind of a different way for them to be, and kind of give them an opportunity that they may not have access to. Yeah, absolutely.
2: Okay. Um I I I find it so inspiring everything that you're talking about, and um, and in my mind I keep contrasting. Um, Where you started with this um, person's letter, saying, you know, I don't even feel worthy of offering myself anything, probably no less anybody else, and then you talked about self-care, right? And then I hear these incredibly um, expansive, um, beautiful, uh, engaged efforts, right? And um, and. Knowing um, from my own experience of just running this place, right, and what it requires, and this kind of delicate balance. You know, somebody once said in New York, you can only do two things well, you know, and then it starts kind of falling apart. And, um, you know, perhaps for people with 20 or 30 years of experience who may be able to have that capacity to hold so much more with equanimity and grace. And um, I just wonder, you know, for what's um, how do you how do you reconcile these two things? I haven't figured it out yet. That if I start to overgive, my equanimity gets lost, my sense of presence gets lost, um, and yet I have this deep bodhisattva vow myself, and I get energy, you know, from a group of people like this showing up with such sincerity. Um, so I'm just curious about that. I, I I don't know the formula that you've guys figured out. <laughs> And if you can give any advice for us, you know, in in maybe a little ways that we might do this bodhisattva path, you know, maybe we can't create businesses, you know, Um, but but how do we do that in some way in which we hold all of that um, well?
0: I know I know that that's been a struggle all my life, and it's part also of my practice. You know I grew up as a Christian and I work with a Christian community the 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 charter schools is with the Latino Pastoral Action Center it's a huge Christian community that I've been working on for twenty years so I do not work with Buddhists. I work with the Christians and I preach to them all the time you know um because you know their their food is as we know very f- it's fried it is mashed potatoes you know, fried chicken, and the pastor was probably 80 pounds overweight, and his wife twice as much, and so I I hit him hard. I used the stick, and I said, you know, go to the Bible, and I quote you know, I quote the, the passage from the Bible. And the, the way that I do that is before I'm about to give him the preach, I go to Google and say, where does it say in the Bible? The temple of God. So, so the Bible gives me the part. So, so he thinks I really read the Bible, but, it, but I go to Google. Um, but I say, you know, this is preach in the Bible. It's a temple of God, and you preach every day and every Sunday. And look at you guys. So I've been able to at least affect some changes on that. But what I do is I actually practice that myself. I get up very early, I do my meditations, I go to my exercises, I do my. I go to my gym, I go to Van Cortland when I'm in, in which, and I run every every other day, and I'll run, walk four or five miles, unless I have my personal victories, that, that I call them, like Stephen Covey used to call it in The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, a book many years ago before most of you were born. Um, unless you give yourself a personal victory, you're gonna be short on your Bodhisattva vows. So I mean, physically, what I eat, um, in Buddhism, there's something called, and hold onto your seats, put your seat belts on. Put your seat belts on. In Buddhism, all Pali texts back to the Buddha, there was a, a, a practice saying, take care of your nine holes. Right? A lot of people suffer from all kinds of diseases. I just had a, I, a friend suffer a stroke. He went to a, his dentist. And he said, part of, the, part of the reason you might have gotten a stroke is because of gum disease. A lot of men suffer from anal hemorrhaging. It's a secret because you're not supposed to talk about that. So we have a practice that goes back to 2,500 years that says, take care of your body, all those openings. So I do that. And that is very much part of the struggle that you're talking about because it takes work. It takes mindfulness awareness to do that. Jump in the shower, shower, boom, out the door. You know, never, never, never drying between your toes. So you leave your toes wet, you put the socks on, and you, you I'm not going to go crude on you now, but you know what happens. you got to take care of those things. Very simple. And unless you have that practice, for me, my opinion, as Bernie would say, my opinion, my opinion is that you're going to fall short on the other pieces that we need to do. So that's my that's my soapbox uh, oh no.
1: In, ultimately this is a practice of awareness and so as we as Paco said, our kind of initial um, outline was to talk about the our our focus on body mind and spirit so Sometimes you know, I'll be, do beginning meditation instruction, and I'll, you know, talk how to position the body, how to focus on the breath, what to do with the thoughts, and how to just, you know, sit and let go and just be in this state of kind of relaxed awareness. And, and then every once in a while, somebody will say, well, I keep falling asleep. It's like, okay, well, maybe you're tired maybe you need to get more sleep and not, you know, kind of stay up on the computer and do all that until one o'clock in the morning, maybe go to bed at 11 and get more rest. So, you know, we, we tend to, um, not think that that part of our life is important. So, you know, it's kind of, we get up, we have a cup of coffee and we're out the door and it's like no breakfast, no fuel, no sustenance. Ourselves, or we grab you know something at the coffee cart or we grab a bar or something like that and so part of our practice is to bring awareness to our physicality because that's you know that's our our vehicle this is our starship that carries our spirit our focus our life force and so taking care of that is as important as taking care of everything else. You know, these are all equal. There's not one that's better than the other. We don't, you know, and there are folks who focus more on their bodies. And so they're at the gym and they're taking yoga and they're running and they're doing all this and they, you know, they look great and all of that. And, you know, they have no kind of awareness that they are a spirit in that body. And that's totally fine. It's not a judgment, but it's just when we, you know, as in many parts of our life, if we only focus on one thing, then the others don't receive our attention. So, you know, our practice is an opportunity. You know, again, as Dogen said, you know, take that backward step and illuminate ourselves. Who am I? How am I in the world? Um, What's what can I do to be more present to this physicality to these ideas that I have that it's always been like this, which precludes us from being present in this moment because we're always looking for the way that it's always been so again it's um it's awareness, and it's not doing it right or doing it wrong. it's you know again, doing meditation instruction, and people are suddenly kind of thinking about. What they did over labor day and then they're kind of like way off in the field somewhere th- having some memory or something and then <coughs> they think oh I'm, I'm doing it wrong it's like well no you're not doing it wrong you're just kind of off there and so you just drop that come back to your next breath so you know we get away from that idea of right or wrong or you know we shouldn't focus on the body or you know we should focus on the body or you know kind of all of these things and we just find this way of being you know kind of at ease you know with equanimity and when we can do that it gives rise to joy because we're not pushing so hard we're not trying so much and you know joy and loving kindness are great energies and so you know if we can kind of shift our focus you know this is a quote attributed to deepak chopra but someone else may have come up with it. It's like we are human beings, not human doings. So when we kind of take a step back from doing and struggling and pushing and I have to do this and someone told me I have to do this, we can just be moment by moment, breath by breath and take care of what's in front of us, do what needs to be done, dry between our toes, eat a breakfast before we run out the door and fight on the subway and decide if that's what we want to be doing with our life. And so we keep coming back.
0: We're running out of time, so I'm gonna be I'm gonna be very short. But Dykin and I used to run a gym, a physical gym about three or four years ago. But we had about a thousand plus members. And um, so I used to go into the men's locker room and do Paco's culo uh, lecture, and basically, I'm not going to go through it. But it ba- <laughs> ba- but 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 basically, is baby wipes can save a lot of men, women too, but baby wipes. So I, t- I used to tell those guys, and I used to got I used to have people coming back to me and say, Paco, thank you very much. You have no idea, you know. Um, yeah. So baby wipes. Carry them wherever you go. The other thing is, the other thing is, is as part of this, and I'm going to come back to your question, Laura, uh, a little bit, is I, I, I'm conscious of the fact that I, that I have to say to as many people as I can how much I love them. And as you notice from my talk, I try to laugh a lot. I try to be joyous, to be joyous, to be in joy, no matter who I meet. Part of my giving my dana, you know which is part give no fear, part of dana, you know is when I go to people and I, I if I can make them laugh if it's the person that I'm giving a toll a toll, in a toll booth or is it the person that I'm giving a quarter to because they're begging you know oh, by the way, if none of you have done a street retreat um, I highly recommend it. Uh, I practice with a guy by the name of uh, Genro, uh, Grover Genro Gond Roshi, who's up in the Zen Center up in the hut. In the hut. He just finished a street retreat last week here in the, in the city. That's a major practice and a major experience. Getting back to your question, and for me is, and I share that with Greg before, is I served in two organizations, one for 22 years and one for 18 years. I allow myself, I allow myself to get sucked into the fact that if I left those organizations, those organizations were not going to survive without Paco. And I had to realize what an ego trip that was. Bad ego trip. And I left both organizations with people, how can we do without you? Da-da-da-da-da. they're doing very well, Thank you. And so. That's a, that's a teaching for me in terms of balancing, you know, uh, I always used to say to people, don't stay in a not profit more than five years max. And I violated that totally. So that's part of it. Don't stay around too long. Even here, don't stay too long too long. Go find some other things. <laughs>
2: I'm
0: done. Thank you.
1: And I'll just close with, you know, there's a saying that the road to hell is paved with good intentions. You know and then the the Eightfold Path has this idea of the correct amount, so what's the correct amount with an intention and also in the meal chant that um, may all donors, receivers, and offerings all be free and so if we begin to become aware of those kind of guides or those just things to think about, things to check in with, things to, you know, kind of figure out where we are on the whole continuum, um, then, you know, that can open up space in our life that we're using to kind of push and we can let go of some of that, that kind of pushing, that running, that doing. And, you know, find this place of rest where it just kind of, Okay, well, I have to wash the dishes now, and so we're totally present while we wash the dishes and you know, if we're really present, we dry them and put them away instead of just letting them sit there for three days until we it falls over and breaks something, and then we realize oh okay, so you know again, it, there's this sense of um the correct amount, you know, the right, you know, not wrong as opposed to wrong, but just. In a situation, what's the intention? How can I be of service? How can I make someone laugh to lighten their load? How can I, you know, is this person is asking me for money? You know, do I get into some idea in my head of what are they going to use it for and what they look like and, you know, blah, blah, blah? Or just do I just give them the money freely? It's kind of... Um, One of my early Zen masters was Tom Robbins, the writer, and just reading everything that he wrote. And um, he has this thing about, you know, when when talking about love, that we look for the perfect lover instead of the perfect love. And then he has this kind of description of that. But that at the end, he says, I love you for free. So there's no expectation. There's no, you know, kind of demands. It's just kind of. For whatever reason I'm just I'm gonna love you and you get to be who you are and I'll be who I am and that's all. You know, that's the offering is to, to find that space where things are just free. And then by that we become free and other people become free and things become free, our dishes become free and all of that. Something I've been meaning to do um, is to reread a book that I read like in college called Henderson the Rain King. And it's a story about this kind of entitled Anglo person who goes to save folks. And this village is having problems with frogs in their water supply. And so he says, well, what we have to do is we have to create a small explosion which will kill all the frogs. Okay, and these folks are like, we're so happy to have your help, and blah blah blah, and you know the great white savior is coming to help us with resources and education, which we don't have, you know. And so there's that whole kind of um, colonial dynamic going on. But so he sets it up, and he winds up adding so much explosive that it destroys the waterhole. It killed all the frogs, which was the intention, but it also blew all the water. Out of this like reservoir that they had, and so that was not the correct amount of um, of uh, effort and so you know it's it's a process we we kind of discover and we develop the ability to figure out what's important, what's you know what feels like the correct amount. often we want to rush in and save somebody, but you know. And certainly, when I began social work, that was my intent: was I'm going to go and save all these people. And, you know, and <clears throat> what it evolved uh, into for me was to um, just do what I can to allow them the space to be able to figure themselves out. And so, in any given situation, it's kind of like, okay, what's the, what's the um, what's the appropriate thing to do here? And what's, you know, what's about me and what's about the situation and about the person? And a a great um, analogy that Paco has used that I often um, pass on to people, um, we're both gardeners. And so, um, and there's this word about um, empowerment, you know, or, and so, you know, it's like, the seed doesn't need anything the seed is perfect as it is nothing i'm going to do is going to you know make that seed but what i can do is create the the space create the opportunity for the seed to do what the seed will naturally do so we make the soil good we Add water we put it in the shade if we need to and then it's just going to do what it does so no amount of my kind of involvement or imposition is going to make that seed, you know and if I forget to water it it's going to suffer if it's in directly in sunlight and it doesn't like that it's gonna have a problem so you know again it's kind of finding um, you know and a lot of it may be trial and error and again there's no right way to do stuff and we learn by um, you know, certain folks say there are no mistakes. It's just, it's all learning. It's all awareness. So I, would
0: I think that I can hit it right in the head in terms of, you know, that analogy metaphor that I use in gardening. You know, I prepare the soil. That's all I do. I set the conditions. My tomato plants and my seeds have all the power that they need. I can tend to them, I can weed, I can water, but I don't need to do that. I think we human beings are those seeds. This Sangha, this community, is setting the conditions for those seeds to grow. And how they grow at different paces, I have no control of my tomato plants. I can set the conditions. Greg and Laura and all the other teachers here can't do anything else but set conditions. The rest is up to what's inside of you. You know, and one of the attractions that I had about Buddhism, particularly at the beginning, was, you know, do not believe in any um, religions, uh, theologies, Doctrines, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, including Buddhism, be uh, a light into yourself. I'm paraphrasing, but that to me was an attraction. That to me was an attraction, and that's, and so I, I don't deal with the correct amount. I don't deal with right practice. I don't deal with all of those things because, I think I can said it very well. It's a stream, and it's a process. But I do have to notice, though, on a moment-to-moment basis, if I can, what's going on. I do have to notice. I do have to drop drop down from my propensity to be in my head and get into my sensorium and feel what's happening. I got up one morning, made my coffee, did everything that I had to do after I had done my meditation and sat in the kitchen, and there was this absolute silence, which happens where I live. I live in City Island, I live in a little island, one mile by a quarter off the Bronx coast, and there was this silence, and all of a sudden I heard this thing, tick, tock, tick, tock, and I go, wow. And it was the kitchen clock singing, and all of a sudden, I just said, wow, 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 wow. And all of a sudden, I had this incredible, incredible sense that I was living in not tick, but tick, tock, that space between the ticks and the tocks. And you've heard this in your in your practice, you've heard it from your teacher, live between breaths, live between blinking your eye, eyelids. That's the space where the juice is. That's the space where the juice is. And for me to have able to be able to get a glimpse of that just momentarily was so delicious. And I yearned to be able to have that practice so that I can do it every single day with every single one of you. And the way that I do it is the way that I... I I try, in my opinion, is Laura came over to me. I was introduced to Laura. I had never met Laura until a little while ago. And I said, may I have a hug? And that was my practice. So that's 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 where it is. And for me, (laughs) I'm just going to be brief because our time, we're really over time, but I'm going to go back. So from my perspective, I was taught that Dana is about giving um, material things, You can give money, you can give things. You can also give teachings, wisdom, whatever it is. And the one that I've been practicing for a long time is the one that comes in a negative form, is give no fear. So the Paco that you see here has a a, a shadow side, a dark side. And the dark side, a little bit of that dark side, is that sometimes verbally, you know, I, I don't, I'm not going to say I'm abusive, but sometimes I'm cutting. Um, my little girl, who's 24 years old now, who was the only one that could get away with calling me, calling me on my shit. Daddy, you got that face on again. <laughs> and that face gave people fear. And from that little girl, I began to say, holy Christmas girls. Okay, okay. She was the only one who could, because everybody would say, You got that face. I said, Yeah, so what? What do you want? <laughs> I'm pissed off. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Daddy, you got that face on again. Meant that she I was causing fear to her. I've worked on that. I worked on that. I worked on my drinking because I'm 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 not a nasty drunk. Um, but I'm a, I'm a high risk person. So, in the old days, if I drank too much liquor, man, I could, I like to drive fast. 89, I would love to be in Italy because I was driving a 90 miles in Italy a couple of weeks ago and everybody was doing 125 and I loved it. Yeah, I would look like I was standing still. Giving, giving fear, um, I drive slow now because the person that I, that's next to me, my wife, who I love with all my heart and soul, If I drive fast, I give her fear. So that's part of the generosity that one has to develop. And it doesn't always have to be material or stuff like that. A lot of us do that. And a lot of teachers do that. In their essence of teaching, they make their kids fearful of them, their students fearful of them. And in my opinion, that's that's not what Donna is about
1: know, the, the paramitas are the, the analogy is that they're a raft that carry us from one place to another, and then we leave them behind, and we walk around that little island for a while, and then we get on another raft, which takes us somewhere. And so, you know, six or 10, depending on your tradition, but the first one is generosity and so if we have that in our mind that whatever we do comes from this place of generosity and if we have the awareness that this is all one body you know that this is all an expression of the source or however it, you know we put words to something that can't be described then we take care of this one body we take care of ourselves and we have this intention this um responsibility kind of to to be generous and that may be material it may be something emotional or something about the interaction Um, rilke said that love is to guard each other's solitude so if we Again, if we create a space for people to be entirely who they are, without any expectations or without any ideas, and we're giving them freedom, we're passing on that joy that we may experience. Then that's a kind of generosity. Um, yeah, it's you know it's kind of that op- the opposite of the the precept of not being stingy. You know, if we're stingy, if we it has to be this way or i don't have or they don't have or i you know all those ideas that we have we let go of all of that and just allow things to be as they are in this moment kind of perfectly imperfect and in process you know moving from you know never fixed never stopped never one idea never one way of being that to me is um, generous and doing that with myself is uh, is a challenge, but also an opportunity. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the Brooklyn Zen Center. Our programs are given free of charge and made possible by the donations we receive. For more information on supporting Brooklyn Zen Center, please visit the giving section of brooklynzen.org.